Welcome. You are listening to Central Synagogue's podcast, featuring sermons, lectures, and conversations from Manhattan's historic Central Synagogue. I'm Rabbi Angela Bookdahl. Each week, we invite you to listen to messages of strength and hope given by our clergy on Shabbat or Jewish holidays. You can also listen to audio recordings of other programs and lectures given at Central by subscribing to this podcast on the platform of your choice. If you'd like to watch our live stream services or learn more about our congregation, I invite you to visit us at centralsynagogue.org. We hope you enjoy this week's sermon. Welcome, everybody. Thank you so much for being here. Good evening. Delighted to see so many faces here in the sanctuary. And I know that we have um, hundreds more joining us online on Zoom, on YouTube, and on Facebook. So thank you all for being here with us tonight. I'm Rabbi Sarah Berman. I'm the Director of Adult Education here at Central Synagogue. We all have experienced over about the past decade an uptick, a marked uptick in anti-Semitism in terms of words and acts of Jew hatred all over our country and rising around the world. And then came the 7th of October and the spike in anti-Semitism that we have all experienced. We're all worried, we're all preoccupied, we're all wondering what can be done So tonight, we turn to these three trusted voices to answer this question. Yair Rosenberg is a staff writer at The Atlantic, where he covers the intersection of politics, culture, and religion, and writes the Deep Shtetl newsletter. He was a senior writer at Tablet Magazine, and has also written for The New York Times, The Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, and The Guardian. He has received awards from the Religion Newswriters Association and the Harvard Center for Jewish Studies. He has become a go-to voice on Jews, Jewish culture, Jewish life, and anti-Semitism in our time. Dr. Rachel Fish co-founded the nonprofit Boundless in 2021, a think tank partnering with community leaders across North America to revitalize Israel education and to take bold collective action, direct quote, to combat Jew hatred. Dr. Fish is also currently the special advisor to the president for the anti-Semitism initiative at Brandeis University. She's also an associate research professor at the Cohen Center for Modern Jewish Studies. She teaches Israeli history and society at the George Washington University as a visiting assistant professor of educational leadership in the Graduate School of Education and Human Development. Previously, Dr. Fish was the executive director of the Foundation to Combat Anti-Semitism. She was senior advisor and resident scholar at the Paul E. Singer Foundation here in New York City, and she was the executive director of the Schusterman Center for Israel Studies. Dr. Fish is recognized as an expert within and beyond the Jewish community on issues of anti-Semitism, which we'll be discussing tonight. And our moderator, Abigail Pogrebin, is the author of multiple books and is the finalist for the 2018 National Jewish Book Award for her My Jewish Year, 18 Holidays, One Wondering Jew. She was an Emmy-nominated producer for Mike Wallace at 60 Minutes and before that produced for Bill Moyers at PBS. 
She moderates conversations at the Stryker Center, the JCC Manhattan, the UJA Federation, the Shalom Hartman Institute, and right here at Central Synagogue. Abby was the president of Central Synagogue from 2015 to 2018 and remains our teacher and our trusted friend. Tonight, Abby will be guiding us through the expertise of Dr. Fish and of Mr. Rosenberg. You will have an opportunity to ask questions towards the end of our hour together. We will be handing out cards uh, that you'll be able to, to write questions on, so look for that later in this hour. For those of us joining us online, please put your questions in the Q&A if you're joining us on Zoom. And so, without further ado, Abby. Thank you so much, Rabbi Berman. Applause. Even though this is such a sober topic, I'm just glad to see you all and those who are on live stream, including my parents. Hello, mom and dad. I hope you all survived your Thanksgiving with your families uh, politically. I want to just say on a personal note, I was lucky enough to interview Yair not so long ago in the world before. He has an incredible album out. In his other life, he's a musician, songwriter, uh, and a singer, great singer. And it's a, it's a Shabbat album. You should, what's the name of it, Yair, for everyone who wants to find it? Az Yashir. Az Yashir. And Rachel and I were lucky enough to actually be in Israel together, traveling in the West Bank. Um, again in the world before, and I had an intellectual crush on her, and I'm so glad the two of you are here. I want to start, if I had interviewed you, you know, two months ago, I think we'd be having actually a different conversation if I asked you to talk about anti-Semitism, particularly in America, before October 7th. So I would love to start with you, Rachel, or Dr. Fish. Uh, if you were going to characterize anti-Semitism before October 7th and now in the weeks since, how would they differ? Thank you, Abby. Thank you so much, Central Synagogue, for hosting. And it's always a pleasure to be with Yair. I honestly would say the biggest difference is that now our eyes are open. Meaning, I was one of the individuals over the last 20 years who's been ringing the alarm bell to say very clearly that anti-Semitism exists from the hard right, it exists from the hard left, it exists from within radical Islamism, it exists from within hardcore black liberationist movements, it exists in a way in which we have not at all been focused on. And I would argue that for many, there were blind spots. They didn't see what was happening in their own political camps, whether because they didn't want to or because they were focused on looking across the aisle. And now we are at a point in time in which the guardrails in our society have been so lowered that what we see playing out is that anti-Semitism is becoming socially acceptable in the 21st century. And that is something I think that we, all of us collectively, have to be addressing. And it's not just a Jewish problem. It is a problem for humanity. It is a problem for liberal societies that hold on tightly to democratic values. Socially acceptable, I just want you to be a little more specific about what that looks like. I think we all would have our answers. What are yours? Socially acceptable is when it is deemed okay for a student to be told for a certain club on campus that has nothing to do with Israel, nothing to do with Jews, nothing to do with Zionism, climate change, sexual abuse issues, that they are not permitted to participate in those organizations because they identify with Zionism. That's not okay. That is now socially acceptable in many spaces 
and as a form of Jew hatred, but it is deemed to be politically correct and okay. That's a problem. And that's not a new problem that happened on October 8th. This has actually been building and cultivating for a very long time, and the Jewish community wasn't paying attention to it. And before I turn to Yair, in terms of the willful ignorance, can you address that without kind of psychoanalyzing, and particularly Jews? Was there a sense that I don't want to see this, as you said, that I'm going to blame the other side? And also, I remember hearing the narrative that Jews are too obsessed with the people who hate us, and we should be more focused on what makes us proud and joyful and spiritual and less focused on the people who want to kill us. So I don't think it's an either or, meaning as someone who plays sports, you have to be both offensively minded and defensively minded. Otherwise, you're not going to win the game. So you have to be able to understand the joys of Judaism, engage meaningfully with substantive Jewish identity and heritage and culture and all of the incredible aspects of our tradition, and you have to recognize when there are people who seek to harm you, kill you, intimidate you, right? You, you can't just pretend that there's only one piece of that. I do not believe uh, that you can build a substantive, long-term, sustainable Jewish identity based upon victimhood. I think that's very important to say. Anti-Semitism cannot define our entire Jewish identity and experience. I do think that for many in the Jewish community, there has been a sense that the American Jewish experience is exceptional in many ways compared to other diaspora Jewish experiences. And there's real truth to that. And even to this day, we know that we do not face the same type of anti-Semitism that historically has faced other Jewish communities and other host societies in which they have lived, where you have top-down violence that is sanctioned by the government. We don't yet live in that world. But notice I said yet. And I said yet because American Jews, for the most part, thought American Jews are different. We're exceptional here, and we will never face the same type of anti-Semitism that Jews faced in other societies. And I think because there was a degree of comfort, there was a degree of acculturation, a degree of assimilation, there was also a degree of accommodationism. And I think that we are now at a point in which we need to recognize Jew hatred does exist, even if it is not the same as some of those other historical moments, but we can't pretend that Jew hatred can't exist here. It can. Yeah, you're the before and after October 7th anti-Semitism. The trouble with going after Rachel is that she will take all of the best answers before you even get to give one. <laughs> I think you can um, handle it. So, I, I mean, I would, I would agree that, um, I think, because when you ask a question, how is it different before and after to two experts? So, there's only two possible answers you're going to get. One of them is, well, I clearly got it completely wrong, and here's why, what it really is, and that was my big giant mistake. Most of the experts will not say this. The other one is, I knew it, and I was right, and everyone's just catching up. But that being said, I, I, you know, I think there's something to that, which is people who were covering this subject very closely were aware of a lot of these sort of fissures that were going on underneath America's different political and ideological movements. Um, and then what I'd say is not that people were entirely naive or didn't see them, but that crisis has a way of accelerating pre-existing trends. Um, and you're seeing that in Israel in all sorts of ways. You're seeing it in Israel and Gaza and all sorts of other things and in the Middle East. Um, and you're seeing it with anti-Semitism, 
which is to say, I mean, many people in this room, because it's a room full of Jews, you're likely to have many more people who are liberal, and therefore more aware of people who associate with the political left, who say celebrated Hamas's attack, or justified it, um, and things like that. And that's caused a lot of consternation, not just in the Jewish community, but in generally on the American political left, where people are looking at their allies and saying, am I really your ally? Right, that sort of thing. And that's been covered pretty well by, by the general media. I work for The Atlantic. It's been written about there in the New York Times. Because the media, for better or worse, the legacy media is read in large part by people who define more as liberals. Uh, but something I've noticed, having covered anti-Semitism across the spectrum, is that you have a similar crackle-up going on on the political right. Um, which is, if you, like, say, go to a conservative Jewish political commentator who's pro-Israel, like Ben Shapiro, uh, and go to his, like, very pro-Israel tweets or videos that he posts online, and then look for the most irate people underneath in reply, it's not leftists who are angry about these. It's other right-wingers who come from a different part of the conservative coalition, this more Donald Trump-connected conspiratorial coalition, the sort of people that Donald Trump had dinner with at Mar-a-Lago, you know, Kanye West and Nick Fuentes, if those of you are familiar with this, you can look it up, right? These sort of conspiratorial characters that, starting in 2015, coalesced around Donald Trump. Some people called some of them the alt-right, but there were other groups as well. And as he gained power and then became the center of the Republican Party, he moved these people one click, two clicks closer to the center. And then suddenly you have a giant crisis in which you have to decide what do you think about Israel where half the world's Jews live. And it turns out a whole bunch of people that Donald Trump sort of brought into conservative politics or closer to the center of power, they don't really like Jews very much. And so they don't really like Israel very much because that's where half the Jews are. Um, and so you're seeing this fight happening on the right, not just on the left. Um, and I, you know, I, I'm... I'm a reporter, I tell you what is now. I can't tell you how things are going to shake out in any of these communities, uh, but they are happening. And I think in a certain sense, uh, like Rachel said, we were just, some people convinced ourselves that uh, we were on some sort of holiday from Jewish history and that these sorts of things were not gonna happen in our lifetime, uh, but they do. They've happened many times in Jewish history and we meet them when they do, uh, but now we see and we can sort of see like there, was, there were fissures under the ground and now we're seeing the earthquakes. You uh, address those who are kind of been shocked by the progressive silence when it comes to October 7th and, and the, the atrocities. But can you just go a little deeper there in terms of how fast it was? You know, the speed with which there was kind of a callousness about it, I think was really stunning to, I'll speak personally, like it surprised me that it didn't last for five seconds. In some case, it never happened at all. What was, why, how do you explain let's not oversimplify and just call it Jew hatred. Why has it been so difficult to disavow, to condemn something as heinous as what we saw on that day? So I do think it's important to acknowledge, right, that there are plenty of people from President Biden on down who, who did, in fact, on the political left, say all the things that you would have thought were like, you know, pretty self-evident, regardless of your opinions on Israeli and Palestinian stuff, like very straightforward things. Uh, but there were other parts of the political left that had trouble with this. And then as time went on, they just could no longer discuss it, right, and didn't want to discuss it, didn't want to deal with it. I, I think that's, that, that relates in part just to the fact that the way people talk about this, you know, the issue of Israelis and Palestinians is very deep, and people have already decided what they think. And even the most, you know, horrific, earth-shattering events, things that you might think should change how people think, on average, most people don't change. And that includes also people who are, you know, very right-wing pro-Israel, very left-wing pro- Like, did people really change their minds? Maybe for a few days they were dislocated or they were, they were silent, but they all then sort of went back to their corners and they found ways to reassert that they were right all along. 
Um, and I, I think that's unfortunate. I think that's an unhealthy way to relate to the world because when things happen, you should change your mind, right? And you should adjust the way you're thinking about something. Um, and I will say that plenty of people I've met have, right? I had a friend who said to me, he's come out of these recent events more pro-Israeli and more pro-Palestinian than he ever imagined he would be because he spent so much time reading on all this stuff, right? And now he just feels like he understands with much more depth uh, these things than he did before. Um, I think a lot of people, though, they don't put in that kind of effort. Um, I like to say the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is one of those issues where people feel entitled to have extremely strong opinions about the subject despite knowing very, very little about it, uh, including even just basic terms. Right? We've, we've said the word Zionism, anti-Zionism. For some people, anti-Zionism means that Israel shouldn't exist because Zionism was the project to create the state of Israel. That is definitely what it historically meant um, in the dominant form. But a lot of people who call themselves anti-Zionist actually think they just mean, I'm a critic of Israel. So you end up with these people saying, I'm anti-Zionist. Other people say, that must mean you want to destroy Israel. And that's actually not what anyone actually thinks. But people are speaking out of tremendous ignorance and not really understanding what they're play what sandbox they're playing in. Uh, so, I, you know, so on the one hand, some people, I think, hardened back to where they were, right? And went back to their corners. I think some people are actually using terminology and vocabulary, whether it's repeating a slogan that they hear on their college campus or they see on social media, without understanding what it means, right? So, like, from the river to the sea can mean different things depending on who's saying it and who's hearing it. But to most Jews, and certainly the slogan as expressed in the Middle East itself, when you poll people, it means getting rid of Israel. Uh, but lots of people saying that on a college campus don't know that, right? They really have no idea. Well, I just want to uh, push on that. Maybe go to you, Rachel, on From the River to the Sea. It's obviously become, you know, a touch point that's very inflammatory. And even Yair saying there are multiple interpretations of it is not my understanding. My understanding is if you understand the definition, the definition is, is the elimination of Israel. So how would you tell us to think about that when we hear it? So if I were teaching one of my courses, I would actually show you a map in which Jabotinsky stands there, and he says, from the river to the sea. Zev Jabotinsky, a revisionist Zionist, was a territorial maximalist. He wanted as much territory as possible in order for there to be a Jewish state, knowing that there was going to be one Jewish state that ever existed in the global community. Now, when we hear from the river to the sea, nobody is talking about Jabotinsky. But it's just important for us to understand, to know the ways in which language is transformed, how identity and slogans are utilized by different individuals at different moments in time. The slogan the way we hear it today, from the river to the sea, is the accepted slogan by those who seek to create a Palestinian state in the entirety of what is known as the land of Israel and beyond. It includes territory that is not under Israel's control. The individuals who are chanting that and leading the chanting of that do know what they are saying. There are plenty of students like Yair is talking about who are what I would refer to as don't knows, who are joining along because they think that this is a litmus test as it relates to their progressive identity. And anti-Israelism has become part of that litmus test. So we heard Two weeks ago, a Stanford student who presented at Congress who said, I asked a classmate, and when I asked them, they said, the river, I think Tigris, the sea, the Red Sea. Uh, that's the Ottoman Empire, right? Like, that's not what we're talking about. 
So the point of this is to say is that there are plenty of people who are don't knows, and there's a herd mentality that exists in our society, particularly around young people and particularly around identity politics. And rather than raise their hand and say, I don't know what this is, I don't know what this means, can you clarify for me when you chant from the river to the sea, what exactly is your motivation, your intention, and what are you calling for? That could be a real conversation. But instead, they fall in line, they sing it, they chant it, and they think because it rhymes, sounds good, this is activism. So I just want to push you on that, because I can imagine some 20-somethings listening to that and saying, you're kind of insulting my intelligence now. Yep. How do you respond to those? I'd say take a class with me. Okay. That's what I would say. But I think there are a couple of really important things here. If you look at some of the documentation that has happened, whether it's from the Hamas charter, which is a clear genocidal charter against the existence of the state of Israel, it completely uses synonymously Jews and Zionists and replaces them interchangeably. And if you haven't read the Hamas charter, please read it. Please ask your children to read it. Ask your grandchildren to read it because there's no mincing words in terms of what is meant by Hamas. If you read, for example, the future vision documents written by some Palestinians who are citizens of the state of Israel, which was written during the early periods of the 2000s, and you read the preamble, they don't say from the river to the sea, but that is exactly what they are talking about. And it raises a serious question about what is meant by a quote unquote one state solution. That's a real question. And if you care about Israel being a Jewish and democratic state, it should raise a real red flag. This does not mean that you cannot have, at some future date and time, the idea of a Palestinian state alongside a stable, secure Israeli Jewish state. Now, since October 7th, will that happen in my lifetime? I'm not necessarily convinced so. But that's not because Israel is sitting there saying, we won't allow a Palestinian state. That is because fundamentally there was a violation in Israeli society that took place on October 7th that is irreparable, at least for a generation. I, I do want to pick up on one thing okay. that, that Yair said that I think is really important. And it relates to this question of you saying, like, I didn't expect it, right? You, or you said, so I think part of the reason a lot of people didn't expect it. The silence, the, the, the absence of, of condemnation. Exactly. Is that there has been, again, for a long period, over 50 years, a set of intellectual frameworks that have become fundamental in terms of how we view the world. Some of those have to do with post-colonialism or decolonization. That is a intellectual idea it's a valuable idea if it's taken as a tool to examine specific issues, but when it is coupled with other intellectual ideas like postmodernism, which says there is no objective truth, all facts are debatable, all narratives are equal, or Marxism that says the goal is to weaken the strong and strengthen the weak. These kinds of ideas, post-nationalism, when they become the primary lens through which you refract all issues, then you set up a paradigm that's very, very superficial and simplistic. And it allows don't knows to glom onto it. What's the paradigm? It says those who have a light skin color, those individuals are clearly powerful and therefore they usually align themselves with the oppressor. 
in relationship to those who are dark-skinned, who are clearly powerless, and therefore are the oppressed. It's a very, very simple formula. That simple formula then says the following. Israel, and by extension, all Jews, are white colonialist imperialists who have displaced a dark-skinned native indigenous population. That narrative lacks real historical integrity, but it is not actually challenged. It is not actually put in a complex conversation and individuals accept it and then hold on to it. And so then when you have events like October 7th, they can't make sense of this idea that Jews at all could be victims because it doesn't comport with the formula that's already been you know, put forth. I wanna talk about that inability to absorb that or acknowledge that Jews could be victims in terms of the posters that have been torn down and the coverage of that. Can you just address, and maybe I missed it, but maybe you've written about it, just kind of how that went viral as an act, as an act of kind of defiance in some way, and how you think, to the extent that you've been following the coverage, it has been characterized. So to fill people in on this story, if you're not aware of it, probably a healthy thing, but if you walk around Manhattan, of course, you've probably seen the posters of the various kidnapped hostages, many of them children, um, some of whom are home today, some of whom still are not. Um, and you also have seen this phenomenon of people tearing down the posters or defacing them in all sorts of ways. I myself actually saw one where people had picked up, you know, some dog excrement from the sidewalk and stuck it on a photo of a kid. Um, so the fact that this was happening became at a certain point unignorable because people doing it were caught on video. You can see the results on the posters. In my case, I literally just photographed the thing and put it on social media. I'm like, well, this is what I saw. Um, and that, you know, some people, obviously, these people like who did this came off very poorly. Um, and you start wondering why people do it. Um, and I think part of it relates to this idea, which is it doesn't, it, it created this certain level of cognitive dissonance for some people who have extremely strong commitments on the Israeli-Palestinian issue, regardless, again, of their actual knowledge of the issue. Um, often it, I think, correlates with a certain negative amount of knowledge because they say it's, you're either on one side or the other side. It can't possibly be that my sympathies are with the Palestinian people, but Hamas, you know, sort of betrayed the Palestinian cause by doing horrific things in its name, and I want to disassociate the legitimate national Palestinian cause from that, and therefore these posters are perfectly fine. In fact, they're expressing a protest that I agree with, which is that these children shouldn't have been abducted. That isn't going to free Palestine or do anything else that's good in this world. Um, but somebody who sees everything as a binary, and you're either on one team or the other, right? Well, these posters are representatives of somehow of building sympathy for the wrong team. And so I have to destroy them because they are breaking my binary. They're suggesting something that I'm not allowed, I don't want to see. Um, I want to say one more thing about this, which is then you end up with the sort of se second stage of this story, which is the media starts covering the fact that these posters are being defaced. And people are being filmed and then suffering consequences for defacing the posters. Um, and you had people put forth the idea that the posters were being put up as bait to catch anti-Zionists, or I don't know what you want to call them, right, these anti-social people in the act and then cause them professional consequences, right? What was really going on here, of course, is that Jews are small people, many of whom know somebody who was affected by October 7th, many of whom are either related or know someone who's related to somebody who was hurt or kidnapped or in other ways hurt or brutalized on that day, and they're showing genuine human concern. So this is pathologizing genuine uh, Jewish concern, one. 
But two, it's saying, oh, we did that really bad antisocial thing that looked really bad on video. Well, the only reason we did it is because those sneaky Jewish manipulators put up those posters to trap Gentiles into doing bad stuff, right? This is classic anti-Semitism, right? And people said this out loud to the New York Times, and they made this as a real defense, as some sort of case. Like, these people aren't against Jews, they're just, insert anti-Semitic explanation, right? And you, you see this a lot, unfortunately. And so there were many layers to that conversation, and I think that it is sort of an instructive one, even though it's a very small and sort of symbolic thing. Symbols are powerful and you could sort of see the way that certain people couldn't handle these symbols. And part of the not handling it is also there's been a rejection of some of the facts here. Yes. And it has, that's been another way, I've been stunned a lot of ways, but the simple reality and documentary evidence from Hamas of what was done, and there is still a questioning of the veracity of these reports, and that, that's part of what, who's to say this person's kidnapped, you could put exactly. up any babies, um, if you who's look to at say the, that someone was burned? Do, is there any proof of the beheadings? Can you just address that in terms of just the media response to the actual sense that maybe all of this information isn't accurate? So if you look at the videos uh, of people tearing down some of these posters, um, sometimes people ask them, why are you doing it? And sometimes they answer because they weren't kidnapped, right? It's a lie. Right, and that's not coming out of nowhere, that's coming out of this very powerful alternative information ecosystem that sprouted up pretty much immediately on October 7th to, at maximalist, deny that any civilians were harmed in the attack at all, right? And if not, if you can't deny something, then to say that the Israelis did it to themselves, which I'm sorry to like bring this to you if you haven't heard this, but there is a whole mountain of conspiracy theories that are being constructed to try to blame the Israelis for massacring you know, hundreds of their own civilians. Um, this is not a thing that happened. Um, obviously, you're going to have scattered reports and incidents of friendly fire or an attempt to rescue hostages in this kibbutz building, and many of the hostages get killed in the attempt to retake the building, right? This is what happens when people take hostages. Obviously, that's very different than Israel killing hundreds and hundreds of own civilians, you know, at a music festival or something. Um, but they take, like any conspiracy theory, a grain of truth, and then you inflate it into a crazed calumny. Um, and again, it's because they don't want to reckon with what actually happened, because it might necessitate changing your mind even slightly about what happened here, and who, where the moral apportionment goes. Um, so that's like, you know, the big picture of what's going on here, and it's actually more, I don't think people quite realize that's going on, in part because if you read, like, uh, the New York Times, whatever criticisms you might have of any legacy media outlet, the New York Times, Washington Post, Associated Press, The Atlantic, where I work, right, all of them have written about this stuff. Their journalists went and watched the 45-minute uh, or so film that was put together, mostly of footage filmed by Hamas, of their own atrocities, which is an incredible service and horrifying thing that I wouldn't wish on anybody, and lots of journalists did it so that they could write about these things, and journalistic outlets in general have done a very good job covering these things. But the person tearing down that poster, are they reading The Atlantic or The New York Times? They're not, right? They're getting their information on TikTok. They're getting their information on YouTube and social media and from friends and from other information networks that we know from surveys are where more people, especially younger people, tend to get their news. Um, but also, like if you look this up, and I haven't checked today, it could, if we're really super lucky, but I doubt it, have been corrected. But in, certainly recently when I last checked, if you go to the... Uh, um, Wikipedia page for the um, Hamas October 7th attack, um, you will find no evidence that any Israeli civilians were harmed at all or abducted. Um, it's all soldiers, that's it. 
right? It's just completely memory hold from what you would have thought is a really important neutral resource of information that if you're just a normal everyday person who relies on Wikipedia and Arabic to tell you what's going on, you would be vastly dramatically misinformed about what's going on. And that was, that's, and you know, there was this hospital that Israel uh, allegedly bombed. And then of course it turned out Israel didn't. It was a misfired Islamic Jihad rocket. Um, and uh, some 50 days later, um, basically every major intelligence agency, all the major newspapers and everybody agrees upon this. The Human Rights Watch 50 days later finally has, uh, has acknowledged what everyone else already had. Um, and, and yet if you go to the Wikipedia page for that and you look at the first paragraphs and everything, it says it's an Israeli airstrike still. I'm fairly certain that's, and again, it could have been updated in recent days, but it okay. was that when I last checked it. So people should be aware because of course you, we are aware of like Holocaust denial, people did that. And I think people don't realize like that will happen again and again and it's easier and easier to do in a digital age and it's, everything happens on the internet faster. And so this is something that you might see. I'm going to probably write something about this because it is very, very important. Um, and I think it's, under, it, it's, it's underestimated because people think, well, the sources I'm reading, they don't have that. Um, mm -hmm. But not everyone is getting their information from the same sources as you or me. Rachel, I want to talk about the word genocide, which has, I think, we're seeing kind of bandied about, sounds more um, flip than I mean it. But it's a very strong accusation. It's being leveled at Israel kind of willy-nilly right now. And I just want you to take very seriously what that definition is and to address what is inescapable, which any... Jewish commentator, journalist that I listen to, Rabbi, acknowledges, which is there's been a great loss of Palestinian life. That's very hard to watch and to absorb, but it is, in my estimation of what genocide is, not genocide, but you can imagine how this narrative is so easily shaped, particularly with the overlay that you were describing. So tell us where, first of all, you see this happening, I think more than I've seen in my lifetime, in terms of the accusation and then how we should kind of begin to unpack it. So again, I would say history matters. When does the term genocide come into our nomenclature? After the Holocaust. Raphael Lemkin coins the term genocide in order to describe what took place under the Nazis to the Jews. It mattered. Genocide is a very specific definition of targeted, intentional mass murder of innocent civilians. And this is what we see very often. It's not just the term genocide. We'll talk more about it in just a second. But it's the term apartheid. It's the term ethnic cleansing. Human rights language has been hijacked and manipulated for clear political purposes, and in this case, they are manipulated and hijacked in order to bludgeon Israel and those who support her. That's not a new phenomena. It's been happening once again for decades. Now, it's very part of the like moment du jour to be able to say, look, Israel, it is engaged in genocidal behavior. Again, we know that if you actually present facts and not just someone's narrative, you challenge that. First of all, it doesn't at all diminish what's actually happening in Gaza right now, but if you look at the population growth in Gaza, let alone the population growth in the West Bank, you could never call it a genocide. That's just not what's happening. You can talk about a lot of issues, but it's not a genocide. 
So when we hear people say things, we actually have to hit the pause button and say, can you tell me how you're using this term? How are you defining it? Why are you using this language to describe this particular moment? Because I think it actually matters. Now, there are plenty of people who won't be able to answer. There are plenty of people who will show their absurdity once they begin the answer. Now, that is separate from recognizing exactly what you're talking about, which is there is loss of innocent lives that are happening in Gaza. We know this, but this is what war is. I'm not justifying it, I'm not rationalizing it, but this is what war is. A younger generation of Americans, including American Jews, feel like war is a very abstract concept and phenomena. It happens way far over there, and there's an assumption that war should never happen, collaborative problem solving, conflict resolution, can deal with every potential issue. And there's a desire, particularly within Western society, to figure out how do you actually solve for these issues, wrap it nicely in a bow, and say, problem solved. Sometimes problem not solved. And that's very, very hard for younger Americans to grapple with. Particularly in the Northeast, but not only, because how many Americans actually know anyone who even fights in the American military and who risks their life on a daily basis in order to secure the freedoms that we have in this country? Not many. There's another piece of this, which is that in the American Jewish community, and I think this is actually really important, and I know that Shalom Hartman thinks about this quite a bit, we don't talk enough about what it means for Jews to hold power, real power. What does it mean when you ultimately have to decide military action, which is not black and white? What does it mean when you have to decide who actually is gonna get food, fuel, electricity, water? Who actually gets to decide who lives and who dies? That's very, very real. And we are very deeply uncomfortable with that conversation. And I believe we have to work a lot harder in our Jewish conversations to actually grapple with what it means for Jews to hold power because Israel holds real power. And because they hold real power, they have a moral obligation to protect their citizenry, particularly from individuals who seek their ultimate annihilation and demise. We're not comfortable with that. So Rachel, I wanna just channel the Jewish student. This is not Abby, because yep. I know you have an answer for this, and it just needs to be said. You know what our 20-somethings are hearing like a drumbeat. And I'm just going to say, put it out there as tightly as I can, that they are told over and over again that Israeli Jews robbed Palestinian land in 1948. They seized Palestinian territory in 67. They've occupied the West Bank for over 50 years. They bulldoze Palestinian homes, olive groves, and schools whenever they feel like it. They have an economic blockade around Gaza, and now they've killed thousands of Gazan families. Each one of those things, I can, there's inaccuracies, there's oversimplifications, but you know that this is the case. So how do you begin? You're sounding so clear to me. But there is, whatever that narrative is, is in a way becoming something that is stronger and a way more truthful for the next generation. So I would say it's not way more truthful, it's way easier to grasp because of that other overlay we already talked about, about power and powerless, about skin color, about oppressor and oppressed. 
It's not that it's more truthful, it's that facts don't matter. It's why the New York Times can wait days even though the Israeli army says we didn't bomb the hospital. And the New York Times doesn't want to believe it, right? Narratives matter. People tell stories to make sense of the world through their narratives. So if my narrative is what you just said, and we already heard from Yair, and I tend to agree, that it is very hard for people to change how they feel. It is very hard for people to change how they actually believe and make sense of the world. That requires actually a very brave individual who's confident enough to say, maybe I was wrong. Maybe I don't know. I need to learn more. There are not enough people who do that. But here's what I want to say to that 20-year-old Jewish student. I would say, first of all, read a book. Second of all, have conversations with people who can hold complexity. Understand that history is not a whataboutism and one-sided. And also understand that there are elements in terms of the story around the creation of the establishment of the state of Israel that is going to leave you in a position that says Israel and those who supported Israel could not mature without being created and no nation state is born in immaculate conception. None. And that means, therefore, Israel is born in a moment in which there is going to be contestation. It's about territory, it's about religion, it's about nationalisms. It was never about race. It was never about skin color. And so they have to be able to have the complex conversation to understand what is historically accurate and what is the context in which that history has unfolded. Yair, we're going to go to questions soon. So raise your hand if you have one, not right this second to me, but for our wonderful folks here are going to give you cards. Yair, in, in terms of where anti-Semitism can be a cancer that affects all of us. You've written a lot about how the overfocus, in a way, on the price Jews pay, not an overfocus, it's a legitimate focus, but that everyone should be alarmed and everyone should pay attention. Can you just talk about, just for those who don't, who say this isn't going to touch me, why do you think so differently? Well, there's a version of anti-Semitism discourse that is always about making it about non-Jews so that they will care about it, you know, and that's the famous uh, Niemöller poem, right? First they came for X and I was not an X and then they came for Y and I was not a Y, you know, and so forth. Um, and, you know, there's merit to those sorts of things because they can get people to care about something out of their own self-interest. Um, I think there's a more interesting version of that argument, um, which is that societies that get consumed by conspiracy theories can't fix their own problems, and anti-Semitism is this foundational conspiracy theory that says, you know those problems that you have, political, social, economic? Well, they're really because of some Jews behind the scenes. So instead of trying to find the real causes of your problems, you start chasing after imaginary Jews. Um, and you can't fix your society, and then suddenly you become sort of a basket case country. Uh, and this happens in a lot of places, and it, to the extent that America or any other country gets consumed by conspiracy theories and anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, we will become a less functional democratic country that is able to organize collectively and rationally to solve our problems. So I think that's an important point, it's true. Um, you know, obviously I think people should actually care about anti-Semitism because it's wrong and it's evil and you should not want it to be part of your society, your country. Um, but I think when you say anti-Semitism is not gonna touch them, you're saying about Jews? 
you're asking me sort of about Jews who think the anti-Semitism won't come for them? Is that what you were, you were referencing? I do, and I also think that some non-Jews feel like it's this kind of enclave of a little bit of alarmism. Yeah. Um, well, I, you know, I think there's something to be said for having a certain amount of skepticism about any of these sorts of claims. Just because anti-Semitism is a real and living force that has been underestimated again and again doesn't mean that every claim of anti-Semitism is true. And one of the things about being a journalist is that I write about like one one hundredth of the sorts of stories that get brought to me. Some of those because I don't think they're significant. Some of them because I look into them and I don't find them to be accurate or fully credible. Um, and some of them because I just don't have the time. But it's actually, you know, there's many of these sorts of things where we could, you know, if you want to direct your energies properly, you have to know what's real and what's not. Um, you know, but I do think that uh, the default reflexive thing where people will be like, oh, those alarmist paranoid Jews, at a certain point, that becomes a them problem, right? It becomes a sort of thing that says something about you because it's fine if you were saying that, you know, 25 years ago, you know, or whatever, but like how many more incidents, how many more shuls have to get shot up? How many more places have to get vandalized during the current conflict, right? How many different ways do Jews have to get assailed from high places and low places, from celebrities and from people with tremendous amounts of money and power, right? Before you recognize that this is a real thing and that it actually is affecting your country and your society. And then I'd say, once you recognize that, you say, wait a second, I recognize that these things are real, that these conspiracy theories are sort of consuming significant parts of our political culture. Um, and that that sort of thing destroys countries. Um, again and again, there's so, so many weird examples of this with anti-Semitism. Um, they've studied how uh, the, parts, the parts of Italy that expelled their Jews were more economically depressed than the rest of Italy uh, because the Jews filled certain economic niches and once the Jews were gone, um, those places suffered for centuries. Um, areas of Germany that were historically more anti-Semitic, um, according to, I think it was a Harvard study, uh, turned out to be poorer, and the reason why is because those areas tend to be less trustful of the stock market, which is something that, of course, is traditionally associated with the Jews. Um, so anti-Semitism doesn't just, you know, come for Jews, right, but it sort of eats the societies that get taken in by it. Um, in terms of Jews, right, I think it is fair to say, right, I it's a, there is a defense mechanism that Jews have which is to deny the reality of anti-Semitism and that it's a living force that could actually impact their lives. And it's a very understandable one uh, because if you see people who are perhaps part of your political cohort, right? I talked at the beginning of this uh, conversation about political conservatives and political liberals, right? The left and the right having these crack-ups around anti-Semitism. So imagine you're a very strong Jewish political conservative or a very strong Jewish political progressive and you start realizing you think that some of the people that you've been, you know, in community with and advocating with and in doing political action with might not actually have your best interests at heart, and you thought that they did. So you have two possible responses. One of them is to sort of acknowledge that, reassess who your friends are, and embark on this kind of scary thing that Jews have had to do throughout their history, which is to sort of stand somewhat apart while trying to still hold true to what you think the right values are, right? And I think that's the right choice, right? You know, uh, Avraham you know, gets his, you know, the, in the Midrash, you know, his name comes from standing on the Aver you know, Hayardain to standing on the, on the one side of the bank of the river while everyone else is on the other side, in this case, is representing monotheism, but the idea being that you stand apart. And sometimes that's one choice you can have. But the other choice you could make is to say, well, all these people are saying all these horrible things about the Jews in the community that I called home. That's really hard for me to take. It must be, though, that they have a point. They must be right. Um, because why would all of these people be saying it? Throughout Jewish history, there have been people who have said they were actually correct uh, about the Jews, and they accept it. I've met people who think the Jews control the media who are Jewish, 
right? People come up to me after events and they ask me questions about it. And I understand, and they're not like negative or they're not, and they're not mean-spirited. It's more just they've heard it so many times, right? Scholars call this, in other contexts, internalized racism, right? When a hostile society repeats stereotypes about you all the time, you can come to think there must be some grain of truth to it because the alternative is much worse. The alternative is that it's not true and they're just using you as some sort of scapegoat or some sort of outlet for negative, darker energies. And you don't want to believe that you live in that world, let alone that it might be your political allies who are you well, know, falling for that. Yeah, yeah, I want to ask you just personally. I know you don't like to talk personally, but just if you could take off your journalist hat for a minute. Sure. And you're somebody who's walking around as a public Jew. And I know you have not been the person to kind of cry 1938, but has this changed just your sense of... Safety. No. I have a really weird and unhealthy reaction to all of this, which is that once all this stuff comes out into the light and people can see the sort of thing that you've been seeing, it makes you feel like you're less crazy, right? And you're like, it's a painful, dislocating experience for a lot of people, but it's so much better that all this stuff be out in the light. Wouldn't you rather know who your real friends are, right? Whatever their politics are right, whatever their background is, whatever you thought you stood before, right? So I already was feeling that way, but I would have to sit down with my editors and say, how do we handhold people through the idea that maybe some people on the political left or some people on the political right or some people in this particular space or this organization we're covering, right, might have some bad ideas about Jews? And you have to do it in this most delicate... Now everyone's out there just waving their freak flag and telling you exactly who they are, right? And so now it's like much, much easier for me to just state the obvious uh, that I... You know, quite frankly, we like those of us who are looking closely knew, and then people can that what's great about it, yes, sure, you see it's disheartening because you see some people, right, who you thought were, you know, good people who may be not as good people. But you also see some people who you might not have expected, who when the chips were down, said, Well, no, this is not acceptable, right? And like I'm you know, people you didn't expect to be allies who turn out they are, right? And this is the only way you can have that is for the light to turn on. Right? And then you see where everybody is standing. Um, and so to me, it's not like it hasn't been a negative or positive moment. It's been a revelatory moment, right? I think was the word traditionally an apocalypse. That's what apocalypse really means. It doesn't mean everything blowing up. It means something, you know, this a, a moment of revelation where people can suddenly see something they couldn't see. Um, and so it's been, I've learned as much as I say, oh yeah, well, I've been following this and so whatever. I could not have predicted to you before October 7th who would be where after October 7th. And it's been really, really instructional, instructive and humbling and you know, I think important, right? And I think in everyone, I think it's important to say, you said, speak personally, right? That that's something a lot of people are feeling. And it's important to speak to that and that you're not the only person feeling it. And it's also, I think we're not the only people in Jewish history who have felt that. It's happened to many, many Jews for many, many centuries where something happens, in, you know, in the world and they realize the world wasn't as they thought it was. Uh, but we got to the other side in all of those cases in the end. And we figured out who our friends were, right? And you regroup. Um, and, you know, it's going to be a different world. Um, but, you know, we have the resources and the history to draw upon when we enter it. I'm going to go to questions. There are a lot. But I, I do want to ask you, Rachel, because some people close to me in my life, when I said, what should I ask them on Monday night? They actually asked the question, when would you leave? Because it is something you hear Jews saying. And sometimes it's in jest. But there's, there's some element of anxiety there that's very real. You mentioned particularly that right now this is not a government that is targeting Jews um, with violence. But just for your own compass, can you address that as honestly as you're willing to be? My passports and my children's passports and my husband's passport is always ready to go. Always. 
Right? That's part of the Jewish reality. Where? That's a great question. For me, there's no doubt. If we were to leave, it would be Israel. It is the only place I truly believe is where I would be other than this country. Europe? No, thank you. And what draws me? What do I live for? Besides my children and my husband, I live for the Jewish people. And so if I'm going to actually make any place my home, it's going to be where there is a laboratory for the Jewish people, which is the land of Israel. That's it. That's me. That's a personal choice. There's always the question of where do you go, but it's also based upon ultimately knowing where you can feel you can have the most impact. And it's not because we can say Israel's the safest place for Jews to be. We know it's not always the safest place for Jews to be. The question ultimately, though, is recognizing those signposts that Yair has been talking about in order to have a sense of making enough smart choices to understand when the guardrails are no longer able to be raised. We're not at that point in this country, but I do think now that people have the knowledge, people see what is playing out, we will have much more ability to make that informed choice of when you leave. I will just tell you, I have a very good friend who came from the former Soviet Union, and she always jokes with me, and she says, tell me when your family's going to leave because we got the memo too late. Right? So it's a real thing. It's a real feeling that people have. I'm going to ask this question for you, Rachel. I have been surprised by the lack of allyship, especially in light of the American Jewish community's allyship um, in rights movements over the past century. Are there friends standing up and speaking out who I am not seeing or hearing? I think Yair answered this a little bit. I think that there are some individuals, some organizations in different pockets, but we do know that unfortunately, anti-Semitic sentiment is increasing in this country, particularly in communities where there are minority communities, particularly in movements that are social justice oriented. And for many of us, that is very, very hard because these are causes we care about. These are initiatives that we have fought for. And yet, when it comes to Jews, they often are silent. And so this then begs the question of what do you do? So I would say there are a few things. One, first of all, don't accept the crumbs that someone's willing to offer you. Have enough integrity to be willing to say, I'm not going to be part of an organization that doesn't recognize the value of Jewish lives and Jewish identity, and you start another organization that's actually focused on the cause instead of accepting the crumbs of someone who doesn't even want you there. Be strong. This is what I tell students all the time who are begging to be accepted in some organization like climate change, but they don't want them because they're Zionists. Start your own. Why are you waiting? It's a real issue. The other piece is, and I think this is very important in terms of understanding our Jewish communal politics, we have to recognize that we failed. Part of the paradigm of Jewish communal leadership said if we constantly outreach to all these different organizations and communities that are well beyond our community, which we should be doing, which is of real value because of universalism, but that universalism is rooted in our Jewish particularism. But when those organizations aren't willing to actually be strong and recognize Jews for who they are and what they are and condemn Jew hatred in whatever form it may manifest, then we have to take a look at our own Jewish communal politics and say, our leadership failed, our paradigms failed, and now we need to rethink how we do that work. 
If we just keep business as usual, we should not expect a different outcome. So now is the time in which we say, how do we actually fix this problem? How do we ensure that we have substantive, meaningful relationships with people who are different than us, and yet we care about some similar concerns? And what I will tell you is that if you sidestep the hard conversations, which are usually about Jews in Israel, you are not doing the hard work for the difficult moment when it arises. Okay, these are great answers, but now I'm gonna ask you to be tighter, because we have so many. Uh, this Looks is like for a you. Few, that's a lot of questions. Yeah, yeah, we're not gonna do them all. As I drop <laughs> Lightning them. round, in two words. Yeah, if the average American is most likely to hold views spoon-fed to them by social media and traditional media, what should Jews be doing differently to influence that narrative? It's a good question, in part because it recognizes that these are two different universes, right? Traditional media and social media increasingly informed very different groups of people in America and often different generations. Um, and, so, and there are totally different approaches to those things. Um, you know, I'm much more suited to speak to traditional media because I work in traditional media. There are certain standards and practices that traditional media has. You can, in fact, if you spot something that seems inaccurate, mistaken, or biased, right? But I would say sometimes things that look like bias can often just be mistakes. Keep in mind that 50% of journalists, by definition, are below average, uh, just like in every other profession. Um, and that means they make mistakes, right? And so you shouldn't always jump to the idea that they're out to get you. Sometimes, you know, they're, the, the bias, if the mistakes can constantly happen only in one direction, that's one thing. But sometimes we're attuned to certain types of mistakes, but you don't realize they're being made in all directions. So in a traditional journalistic enterprise, you can, in fact, reach out in good faith, write letters to the editor, submit corrections, things like that. Um, you can also write your own op-eds. You can organize to get your, you can get an event covered, right? If you do a rally or something, and you make sure that you have someone who reaches out to the media and says, we're gonna do this thing. Um, you can basically interface with the traditional media in a very normal way. Um, and the traditional media will generally tend to take those things seriously. Um, when it comes to you know social media and things like that, it's much dark. It's much you know more inchoate and uh, you know what to do about any of those places. Um, if if for example, if my industry understood how to do that, um, we'd be much wealthier and fewer places would be shutting down every ten minutes. Um, you know, solving how to like actually reach large numbers of people on social media in any substance way is hard. We have a very fragmented landscape. People have different influencers they listen to. Um, people have different YouTube channels they subscribe to. Um, people subscribe to this or that Substack, right? And that's where they're getting their information. Um, and so I don't have like a silver bullet because I don't think anyone really has one. Um, one benefit of, a be of that fragmented landscape though is there's nothing stopping you from putting your own voice out there, right? And there's nothing stopping people from telling their own story. Um, a challenge that Jews will always have to face is numbers, um, which is Jews are, a t un contrary to the conspiracy theorizing of anti-Semites where like the tiny 0.2% of the world of people who are Jewish wags the tail of the 99.8% that's not, actually the terms of discourse around Jews, Zionism, Israel, all of that is determined by the non-Jews, right? The debate is determined by non-Jews and how they talk about Jews. And Jews have to work within that, that, that context. When you want to understand why, say, Theodor Herzl pitched the state of Israel in some context as a colonial project, and even says, played into certain anti-Semitic ideas where he'd say, well, if you help us out, the Jews in Israel can help run your banks and things like that. Because he had to pitch the idea and convince an, a, a largely anti-Semitic and colonial society that this is something you should do. Right, if he said, well, they're the indigenous people and you should give them their land back, I don't think that would have gone very well. Okay. Um, and so you kind of need to come up with 
ways to make the case, whatever that is in 2023, uh, for your values, for Jewish people, in terms that the broader society can understand. I don't, it's not the best, most inspiring answer. Because ideally, you would want to say it on your terms. But that's not the world we live in. It's not the numbers of people we have. One story. Um, this is not short. Yeah, yes, here. I know, but I speak so fast. Think of how no, many no, words you get. okay, because I've got to move on. Okay, fine. Uh, Rachel, where do you place the Jewish Voice for Peace and groups like this who are closing down bridges, Grand Central Station, etc.? This person putting their thumb on the scale, self-hating Jews or anti-Semites? Jewish Voices for Peace is not representative of the mainstream Jewish community. And that, I think, has to be made time and time again as the case in institutions in which JVP attempts to control and dominate the conversation. It happens on college campuses all the time. I'm not willing to say they're all self-hating Jews. There are plenty of Jewish students who are involved in JVP who care deeply about Jewishness, but many of them are deeply misguided, ill-informed, and unsophisticated thinkers. I say one quick thing yes. about this, yeah. which is that we could all use a little bit more intellectual honesty in our conversations. I write a newsletter for The Atlantic, a non-Jewish publication called Deep Shtetl. And if you sign up, which you all should do after this event, you'll get a welcome email. And one of the things it says is that I am not the Jewish Pope and I don't get to decide who is Jewish and who, is, who isn't. But when I tackle an issue that is controversial within the Jewish community, I will try to tell you the diversity of views, but also who, what most people think. Um, and sometimes Jews who have minority viewpoints, right, and that could be you know, during the Trump era, it could be extremely right-wing Jews, right, will monopolize the Jewish voice. And they will say, this is what Jews believe, even though it, we have polls and we all know this isn't so, right? And sometimes, in some cases, it can be people with very left-wing views. And again, these views can be totally legitimately heartfelt and well-held, but a certain amount of intellectual honesty and also the way a minority ought to conduct itself, you recognize if you try to dis you know, enfranchise most of your community, it's never going to end well. If you give non-Jews, right, non-Jewish society reasons to disempower large groups of Jews, it doesn't end well for you in the end. In the end, once you say something that you don't, they, don't want you, they don't want to hear, they'll disempower you too because you've given them the tools to say, we can just ignore groups of Jews who say things that we don't agree with or we don't like. So you should always insist on saying, here's what I believe, but I'm 30%, or I'm 20%, or I'm 10%. I still think I'm right, and here's let me tell you why. But you should know, and here's who you should talk to to understand okay. what others think. And by the way, it is a great newsletter. Worth the money. Uh, Deep shtetl. <laughs> Rachel, what actions can we each take to help combat anti-Semitism, as specifically as you can? So if I'm looking at all of you and that question comes up, for me, I think it really is about building relationships with non-Jews first and foremost. Who are you bringing into your home on a regular basis to break bread? Who do you have conversations with to talk about the complexity of what it means to be an ethno-religious community? How do you humanize Jewishness? Do you let people into your home to celebrate Shabbat, who are non-Jewish? Do you bring them to your home so that they understand Hanukkah, it's coming up? Do you invite them to come to Shabbat services with you? This sounds very simplistic, you have to remember, I grew up not in a beautiful sanctuary like this, but in the foothills of the Smoky Mountains in Northeast Tennessee. There are no Jews where I grew up. Out of my town and six towns surrounding, there are 60 Jewish families. The majority of the world in which I inhabited was a non-Jewish world. It is not New York City. Which means you have to be able to articulate who you are and what you believe and why you have those beliefs over the most mundane things, like why you don't go to every Friday night football game. Why do you not eat pepperoni pizza at the sleepover for your best friend? 
right? These things matter. And those are the moments where individuals then say, ah, you're different. But that difference is beautiful. It's unique. There's something special to it. I have to tell you that the people who called me after October 7th were every single one of my closest high school friends. Because for them, I represent Jews. Whether I like it or not, I am the only Jew most of them know. And the way they feel about me is because my mother used to teach what Hanukkah was and how to spin a dreidel and how we light the menorah. And because my father was a pediatrician who took amazing care of every one of their children, irrespective of their race, their sexual identity, their gender, everything. We lived the values that we were taught based upon our tradition, knowing that we are deeply rooted in our particularism while we extend our hand to the universal. So engage with people who aren't like you over substantive issues rather than live in your Jewish bubble in which you're talking to one another, which is what happens on social media. It's a tight-knit echo chamber. Get out of it as much as you can. Because if you don't get out of it, don't expect anything different. That's what I would say. Thank you, Dr. Rachel Fish. Thank you, Yair Rosenberg. Thank you all for coming and everyone on live stream. And here's to a more peaceful day. Thank you for listening to this edition of Central Synagogue's podcast. Be sure to subscribe so you're in the loop on future episodes. And please follow us on social media or watch our live stream at centralsynagogue.org, our Facebook page, or on national cable at the Jewish Broadcasting Service. Thanks again for joining us. Elohim,